Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. rock roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. You know about Whitney Houston. A worldwide phenomenon. A powerhouse singer with a five-octave range. Perhaps the last true diva of the 20th century. But this is not about Whitney Houston. This is about Robin Crawford, the woman who fell in love with her as a teenager and stayed by her side, protecting her and promoting her through 20 years of fame and drama. This story is about a girl. The beautiful girl was sitting at the back of the room at the community center. As soon as Robin Crawford saw her, she had to stop and take a good look. The girl was just that lovely. Long legs and peachy brown skin, eyes looking deep into somewhere distant. Robin had just turned 19. It was the summer of 1980 in East Orange, New Jersey, and she was handing out paperwork for the summer day camp her high school basketball coach was running. She walked over to give the girl her forms. What's your name? Robin asked. That brought the girl back from wherever she'd been, and she looked right at Robin. Whitney Elizabeth Houston, she said. Who gives their first, middle, and last name when they're introducing themselves? Robin liked this girl's attitude. It was like she already knew she was somebody important. Okay, Robin said. I'll keep an eye out for you. And she did. Whitney, or Nippy, the childhood nickname she used most of the time, was about to turn 17. As camp counselors, the two of them gravitated together. The first time they hung out, Whitney pulled out a cigarette. You smoke? Robin asked, shocked. Whitney smiled and then pulled out a joint. Yeah, I smoke, she said coolly, tucking the joint away and lighting the cigarette. Later, Robin found out that Whitney used cocaine, too. Had started at 14. This Catholic schoolgirl was a badass. Robin was kind of impressed. 
kind of fascinated. She had dated a boy in high school, and she'd made out with one of the girls on her basketball team, but she never felt drawn to someone the way she was to Whitney. Whitney, it turned out, was music industry royalty. Her cousin was the famous R&B star Dionne Warwick, and her mother, Sissy, was a legendary backup singer who'd worked with everyone from Luther Vandross to Elvis Presley. Whitney had grown up calling Aretha Franklin Auntie Ree. Whitney herself was already a professional singer. At 15, she had recorded backup vocals for Lou Rawls and Shaka Khan. Singing wasn't her only talent either. The month before she and Robin had met, Whitney had been spotted by a scout on the street in Manhattan and signed to a modeling agency. Even so, Whitney had all kinds of bad things to say about her own appearance. Her torso was too short, her waist too high, her knees faced the wrong directions. How could she be so beautiful and think she was so ugly? It was only later, when she discovered how critical Sissy Houston was of her only daughter, that Robin got it. No one pushed Whitney harder than Sissy, and nothing Whitney did was good enough for her. Robin was close with her own mother, especially after her abusive father left the household. He'd been given to fits of violence, once dragging Robin's mother through the house by her hair. Robin was hoping she'd be able to find a different kind of love for herself. A love not based on possession or lust, but on partnership and love. One afternoon after camp, Whitney invited Robin over to her house. They sat next to each other on the floor with their backs against the sofa. When Whitney smiled, it was like a light turning on. They were sitting so close that they were almost touching. And in the next moment, they were kissing. A long, deep kiss. It felt like they'd been on their way to this all along. As Whitney eased back, Robin's pulse started pounding. Whitney was a church girl. Had she ever kissed another girl before? What if she freaked out? But Whitney just smiled, cool as ever, and kissed her again. Robin was falling in love. But she didn't really understand who Whitney was until later that summer. That was when Whitney invited Robin to church to hear her sing. Robin rummaged up a decent dress, she never wore dresses, and went. At the New Hope Baptist Church, she watched as Whitney stood up, a tiny figure in a white robe. The congregation was murmuring, it sounded to Robin like they were bracing themselves. Robin held her breath. Then Whitney opened her mouth and filled the space with song. It seemed impossible that such a big voice could come from such a small person, that anyone's lungs could sustain a note for so long, or that any music could feel so full of soul and emotion. Robin realized she had stood up out of her seat. She'd gotten to know this girl so well in the last few months, but she'd never realized that Whitney had a gift like this. She was miraculous, powerful. Whitney was singing with her eyes closed, and then suddenly she opened them. She was looking right at Robin. Afterwards, 
Whitney took Robin over to her cousin's house. He vanished as soon as they got there, leaving them the place to themselves. They settled on the love seat, and Whitney smoked a joint and read from the Bible until they finally started to kiss. When Robin touched Whitney's skin, she thought, This is it. This is the love I was waiting for. After that, they were inseparable. They went to the beach together. They took the train to Harlem to buy cocaine. Sometimes, they'd get a hotel room so they could spend the night wrapped in each other's arms. Once, they went to a gay club in Asbury Park, danced slow, and wound up fogging the windows of the rental car until a cop told them to move along. That fall, Whitney started her senior year of Catholic high school. Robin went back to Monmouth University for her sophomore year of college. They talked on the phone every night, always signing off with, Wish you were here. Whitney hated school. She mouthed off to the nuns and skipped class most days. Instead, she was laser-focused on her career in modeling and music. That year, she made the cover of Seventeen. She was traveling to fashion shoots as far away as the Dominican Republic. She was already conferring with her Auntie Dion about which record company she should sign with. Robin liked school, but she liked Whitney more. She could see where Whitney's talent was taking her, and she wanted to be there with her, so she decided to drop out of school to help Whitney fulfill her dreams. Her mother was furious. Whitney was thrilled. They spent a few weeks doing way too much coke, though they kept telling each other they'd quit when Whitney's career took off. Cocaine can't go where we're going, Whitney would say. They spent hours together snuggling in bed, listening to music, with Robin writing down the titles of songs Whitney wanted to record someday in a little notebook. They got closer to each other as Whitney got closer to signing a record deal. Her powerful voice and good looks along with her music business connections, ensured that she was soon fielding offers from both Elektra and Arista Records, eventually landing on Arista. I signed my deal, she told Robin. It was the beginning of 1982. This was it, the start of everything they dreamed together. The next day, Whitney showed up at Robin's place with a gift box. Robin opened it. Inside, there was a Bible. Whitney explained that her career was really beginning now, and so from now on, she and Robin couldn't be together. Not physically, anyway. If people found out about them, it would make things too complicated, too difficult. And Whitney wanted to have kids someday, so she'd have to find a man to have them with. You know what we shared. You know what I feel about you. We will always have that. Robin looked at Whitney's beautiful face, and looked down at the plain, slate-blue Bible in her hands. She understood what Whitney was saying, what she was really saying. She was saying that she wanted Robin in her life, permanently. She wanted Robin with her wherever she was going. If they stayed together as lovers, Robin would be a liability to Whitney. But if they were chased, Robin could be Whitney's backbone, her partner. That was more important to her than sex. They wrote vows that day, in the Blue Bible. They each wrote how much they loved each other, promised to be true and loyal to each other, and signed it. It was like a marriage, but turned inside out. Instead of consummating their commitment to each other, they agreed to never touch each other again. 
Whitney Houston was a star as soon as her first album dropped. It peaked at number one on the Billboard chart and sold 22 million copies. She launched directly into international tours, and Robin went with her. Tours were a whirlwind of foreign cities Robin had never dreamed of seeing. Late nights on the road, and water gun battles among the crew during off hours. And cocaine. Somehow, cocaine had managed to come along with them, even though they kept telling each other they would quit. They had fallen into a rhythm as a team. Whitney was the talent. Robin was the right-hand gal. Early on, Whitney had put her on the payroll of her company, Nippy Inc. Robin's official title would be creative director, but she was effectively the person who organized her day-to-day life. Robin was an early riser, and while Whitney was still sleeping in, she'd be fielding requests from the press, promoters, agents, songwriters, and producers. She handled Whitney's correspondence, schmoozed record label staff, scouted out venues, and planned her outfits. She hired photographers and made travel arrangements. Anyone who wanted something from Whitney had to go through Robin first. When Robert De Niro came asking for a date with Whitney, it was Robin who let him down easy. She also had to wrangle Whitney's family, who often came along on tour and were always around when they were home in Jersey. There was her mother, Sissy, still overbearing and demanding, her father, John, secretive and separated from Sissy, her two dirtbag brothers, whose own music careers never seemed to materialize, and who seemed to spend most of their time on tour scoring drugs. Sissy was the most stressful to deal with. She didn't like Robin, and she didn't try to hide it. She kept telling Whitney that it was unnatural for the two of them to be so close. There were rumors out there about Robin and Whitney, just as they'd known there would be. Because of their easy intimacy, the tattle mail has ground out the story that they are lovers wrote critic Richard Corliss in a Time profile in 1987. It described Robin as severely handsome, code for butch. He quoted Whitney's denial. Whose business is it if you're gay or like dogs? What others do shouldn't matter. Let people talk. It doesn't bother me because I know I'm not gay. I don't care. Robin, she explained, was the sister I never had. Ouch. Robin didn't love hearing Whitney compare homosexuality to bestiality. But she understood she was just trying to throw the press off their trail. Meanwhile, they both made sure there was nothing to those rumors. They shared first a small apartment, then a luxury high-rise, then a palatial mansion. Sometimes, when they were home from tours, they'd fall asleep in the same bed, snuggled up. When it was Robin's bed... Whitney always slipped back to her room sometime in the night. When it was Whitney's, Robin would hold her through the night and then leave in the morning. But that was as far as their intimacy went. They were sticking to their vows. It had been hard for Robin when Whitney burned through a brief but intense affair with Jermaine Jackson, who was older than her and married and eventually ghosted her. Whitney was more possessive. On their second tour... A dancer named Joy had asked Robin out for a day of sightseeing in London. That evening, Whitney asked if Robin and Joy had slept together. Don't lie to me. Robin said they'd kissed, but they hadn't taken off their clothes. Whitney slapped her across the face. She apologized immediately. 
But when the tour took a break, Whitney called Joy in front of Robin and fired her over the phone. I hired you to dance, not to make friends. From then on, everyone on the tour understood that Robin was off limits. Later that year, Robin decided to get her own apartment. She told Whitney she needed some space, and Whitney bought a condo for her. A few days before Robin was going to move in, she got a call. It was the dancer, Joy. She wanted to talk about what had happened on tour. Robin said to come over and let Whitney know they were meeting. But when Joy showed up, so did Whitney, demanding to know if they were lovers. Robin told her they weren't, but refused to ask Joy to leave. So Whitney stormed off in a huff. The next day, Whitney came back to the condo in a rage. She made Robin promise to never invite Joy over. She picked up the Bible she'd given Robin all those years ago and started tearing out the pages. Robin never ended up moving into that condo. It felt wrong to be that far from Whitney. She wasn't ready to live on her own, she decided. So Whitney sold the condo at a loss, and Robin stayed. It was the next year, at the 1989 Soul Train Awards, that Whitney met Bobby Brown. He was younger than her by six years, a kid from Boston who'd made it in a boy band and struck out on his own. Whitney was dating Eddie Murphy, or trying to, since he didn't always return her calls. But she had time to audition a new guy. They made a date, and Whitney had Robin run out for condoms before he came over. The audition must have gone pretty good, because after her relationship with Eddie Murphy had ground to a slow, painful end, Whitney started seeing Bobby regularly. By 1991, they were getting pretty serious. One night, she decided to surprise him by showing up at one of his concerts. She and Robin went backstage to see him, only to find him exchanging pushes and blows with the mother of one of his kids. His brother broke up the fight, but as she was about to leave, the woman turned and looked Whitney straight in the eye. I don't care if you are Whitney Houston, she said. If he would do this to me, he'll do it to you. Whitney shook the incident off, but Robin began noticing other warning signs about Bobby. For example, Whitney's drug use tended to get heavier when Bobby was around. By this time, Robin had quit using drugs, and she and Whitney had agreed over and over that Whitney should quit too. Now she told Robin she just wasn't ready. And there was the time that Bobby went to Boston to tell his ex he and Whitney were together. But instead, he got her pregnant again. Whitney was furious when she found out, but she decided to forgive him. There was something about Bobby that kept her snared. Robin couldn't understand it. The one time she'd gone with Whitney to his house, it was filthy. One night, Robin and Whitney were at home alone together. It was rare now that this happened but it felt good when it did. They could relax and talk the way they used to before Whitney became famous, when she was just a girl Robin loved. They were lying side by side on Robin's bed when Whitney confided that Bobby had asked her to marry him. Do you love him? Whitney said that she did. Then she looked at Robin and asked, Do you think he loves me? Robin didn't know what to say. She barely knew Bobby. He should love you, she said at last. I sure hope he loves you. At the wedding, the other bridesmaids wore frilly dresses. 
Robin wore a tailored jacket and skirt. Dresses still weren't her thing. She locked eyes with Whitney as she got to the altar and handed off her bouquet. She felt like she was seeing her for the last time. Whitney and Bobby went off to their honeymoon in Italy. When they returned, Whitney had a three-inch scar on her face. We had a disagreement, she explained to Robin. I threw a glass, the glass hit the wall, shattered, and that's how the cut happened. It wasn't a big deal. Robin remembered her own father's violence, and she knew better. The next few years were difficult for Robin, for a reason that had nothing to do with Whitney. First, Robin's brother, and then her mother were diagnosed with AIDS. Robin moved them both in with her in a three-bedroom condo. Her brother would die in 1993, and her mother would follow three years later. In those years, she was barely dating. Between Whitney's schedule and her family's care, she hardly had time, and she was afraid of the AIDS virus, too. But in 1993, after her brother passed, she looked up a beautiful young publicist she'd met a few years before while working on Whitney's first film, The Bodyguard. Lisa Hintelman remembered her, and they began seeing each other, always at Lisa's place in New York. Robin liked Lisa a lot, but if they were in public, Robin wouldn't hold her hand. They could be spotted, and that would reflect badly on Whitney. The relationship petered out. Meanwhile, Whitney's marriage had become perennial tabloid fodder. Bobby had a short fuse and was constantly in and out of trouble, legal and otherwise. He and Whitney fought often, intended to seclude themselves away from other people, even after their daughter, Bobby Christina, was born. Robin rarely saw either of them, even when she had to stop by their house on an errand. She still had to deal with Whitney's parents, Sissy and John. Her relationship with them had gone steadily downhill. After yet another insinuating magazine article was published about Robin and Whitney's relationship, Sissy had demanded that Robin stop appearing with Whitney in public. She forbade them to walk together, ride in the same car, or sit together at award shows. John, meanwhile, seemed to resent Robin's role in Whitney's career. He routinely withheld important financial information from her, and acted offended when she asked about their budget. She needed to know these things in order to orchestrate the rest of Whitney's life. But John kept treating her like an annoyance at best. Then, things got even worse. In 1995, the National Enquirer ran a story claiming that John Houston had taken out a hit on Robin. The source claimed to be a former security worker and alleged that John had offered him $6,000 to break Robin's arms and legs. Whitney confronted her father angrily over the allegations, and he denied it. Later, Whitney's brother Gary would say the family only meant to scare Robin. Either way, Robin was shaken. John, Sissy, and more and more, Whitney's sister-in-law Donna were taking over Whitney's career trajectory and seemed to be burning through her money. Whitney was also supporting most of Bobby's extended family. Her savings were constantly being drained and she had to keep going out on tour to keep up with expenses. The concert schedule was backbreaking, but Robin had been sidelined. She could only watch her friend being worked to exhaustion. Sick, strung out, or preoccupied with her husband's dramas, Whitney started missing concert dates in the late 90s. She was fired from a gig hosting the Oscars. 
Finally, in 2000, she stood up George Michael at a duet recording session they'd booked. Robin took it upon herself to buy him a designer shirt as an apology. The next time Robin saw Whitney was a few days later, backstage with Bobby before the Soul Train Music Awards. Everything's cool, she told Whitney immediately. George Michael had accepted the apology gift, and things were smoothed over. Bobby turned around and started screaming at her for buying a gift for another man on behalf of his wife. Whitney just blinked and said, Apology for what? She'd forgotten about the recording session entirely. They were both strung out, Robin realized. And immediately, she realized something else. She was done. She looked straight at Whitney, holding her gaze. I'm trying to do my job, and you're going to let him speak to me this way? I quit. She was 40 years old. She'd been with Whitney her entire adult life, more than 20 years. She packed up her things and hired a moving company. Somehow, she would have to find out who she was without Whitney Houston. Twelve years later, Robin woke on a lazy Saturday morning in February. She rolled over in bed and kissed her wife, Lisa. Then she went to check on their three-year-old twins, Jillian and Jeremy. The family lived in a 200-year-old farmhouse in Stockton, New Jersey, about an hour's drive into the country from East Orange, where Robin and Whitney had grown up. This was Robin's life now, a life she'd built slowly, piece by piece, with Lisa's help. After she'd left Whitney, Robin had been nervous about contacting the woman she'd briefly dated in the 1990s. But Lisa had been happy to hear from her, had helped her get back on her feet, supported her, and encouraged her to go to therapy. They'd renovated the farmhouse together, adopted children together. Lisa had helped her find her current job as a special projects editor at ESPN. And Lisa had helped her connect with an LGBT community she'd never had. That evening, in fact, they had dinner plans with friends they'd met at a Pride event. The two couples gathered together at a local restaurant and were talking before dinner when Robin's phone started ringing. Then Lisa's phone went off. Finally, their friend's phone rang, and she took the call. That was how Robin learned that Whitney was gone. Whitney Houston had drowned in a bathtub at the Beverly Hilton in Beverly Hills, California. The coroner's report said that heart disease and cocaine use were contributing factors. She was 48. Robin was heartbroken. She'd known Whitney was in rough shape. Whenever anything bad happened in Whitney's life, which was fairly often, reporters would stake out Robin's house hoping for a comment. Like everyone else, Robin had seen the photos of Whitney looking disheveled and disoriented. But, she thought, her friend had deserved better. Whitney had been on tour, but her most loyal friends and employees had all been replaced or kept away from her. There was no one there to check on her, to protect her. She died alone. The funeral was at New Hope Baptist Church, same place Robin had heard Whitney sing for the first time all those years ago. The place was packed. Robin could see some old colleagues in the crowd, but no one spoke to her. She and Lisa arrived early with Robin's sister, Bina, but there were no seats left except in the front rows, which had been marked off with tape. Robin went to the last empty row and removed the tape, and the three of them sat down. An usher came and told them to move. Robin declined. 
A publicist came over to tell her she was sitting in a place reserved for family. I'm not family, but I know where Whitney would want me to sit. No one bothered them after that. That was as close as Robin came to publicly acknowledging how close she and Whitney once were. She held her silence for years after the funeral, still honoring the vows of secrecy she and Whitney wrote down so long ago. But in 2015, Whitney's daughter, Bobby Christina, was found dead in a bathtub, just like her mother. Robin heard the things that were being said about Bobby Chris and her mother. Gossip about them was vicious. It was then that Robin decided she needed to tell the truth about her relationship with Whitney. Living a hidden, secret life had been poison for her friend. It was time for everyone to stop pretending that the public image had been the real Whitney. Robin wrote a memoir of their relationship, a portrait of the woman she knew and loved. Whitney Houston was a -a once-in-a-generation kind of singer and a magnetic beauty. She is one of the best-selling recording artists of all time and an American icon. Along with Michael Jackson, she redefined pop music in the 1980s, forming a bridge from traditional R&B music to the pop artists of the 21st century. But this isn't about any of them. This is about Robin Crawford, the love that Whitney Houston could not follow, the truth she wouldn't face. This is about a girl. About a Girl comes to you from Double Elvis and is executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler. It was created, written, and narrated by me, Eleanor Wells, with additional writing and editing by S.I. Rosenbaum. Scott Janovitz is the show's producer and mixer and provides music and editorial support. Audio editing by Matt Tahaney. If you like the show, please subscribe to About a Girl on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave a rating and review. For more great shows from Double Elvis, visit DoubleElvis.com. That's DoubleElvis.com. 